Joshua chapter 5. What we've been doing for these last few weeks is going through these first five chapters of the book of Joshua, not the whole entire book, but just the first five chapters, and looking at a series titled Transitions. And uh, we've been looking at the, the circumstances that often change in our lives, sometimes change many times without warning, and, uh, and how to learn to follow God in the midst of those changing circumstances. And so the title of the series has been Transition. The text has been Joshua 1 through 5. Today we're going to finish that series out in chapter 5. I'm not going to read the whole entire chapter, but I'm, we're all going to focus on uh, a few of the very last verses in chapter 5. So transition is something that really for every one of us we can relate to. We all face times of transition. Uh, we've all been through transitions. You're going to be through, going through transition again in life. It's just a fact of life. It's the way life operates. Now, that transition comes in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's on a relational level where you have someone in your life that was once in your life and they're no longer in your life. And that could be for a variety of reasons or relationship changes for some reason, right? It could be uh, a marriage that changes to where you move from being single to being married or from being married to being single again. And, uh, and you've go through a time of transition, there are a lot of moving parts to that, right? You may, uh, you may have a close friend that, that uh, does something to hurt your relationship, hurt your friendship, and, and you move through a transition where that friend was once there for you and now they're nowhere to be found any longer, and, and you have to move through that transition. Sometimes transition comes in career, right? We do a, you know, a job that we've trained for for years, and, and, uh, and sometimes that job comes to an end. We can't do the work anymore, or uh, that work is taken away from us. We lose our job, or we're laid off, or whatever may go with that, and we move through a time of transition. Some move from the work field, right, the workplace, into to retirement. That's a whole transition in and of itself, and so we understand transition, right? It happens in every area of life virtually, financially, in our health, uh, relationally, in, in our career, the workplace. I mean, we know transition. It comes. And as we move through the book of Joshua, these first few chapters, what we've seen is that there is a lot to learn about transition from God's perspective, that there are a lot of things that he wants us to understand. One of the things we've seen through this series is that there is a difference between change and transition, there is a huge difference. A lot of times we use those terms interchangeably, you know, to where we say I'm going through change or I'm going through transition. Really, they're two different things. And uh, change is the circumstances that are different. Uh, you know, you lose your job or you get a diagnosis or uh, a relationship ends. That's change. The transition part of it is different. The transition is the mental and the uh, emotional and the spiritual adjustments that we have to make whenever change comes. That's a whole different ballgame. And so change is different than transition. We've all experienced change, but the transition is the difficult part. Here's what happens. Here, here's why I think this series has so resonated with people over the course of these few weeks. Certainly not because I can, can, can explain it the best. I certainly cannot. But because we understand what it feels like to go through transition. We understand what it's like to ask the question when we go through transition, God, do you even know what's going on in my life? Right? God, do you even know that I've just lost my job? Do you even know what the doctor just told me? Do you even know what has changed in my life? God, are you even aware? Is this on your radar? And we know what it's like to feel that tension in our lives, right, when that happens. And what we've learned in this series and through these first few chapters of the book of Joshua is that whenever we go through transition and we ask those questions, God is always working ahead of us. He is always working around us. And when everything falls apart even, right, we can know that God is at work, that God has a purpose, and God has a plan if we only follow him on his terms. And so when we ask the question, God, where are you? He's like, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm at work. And so just trust me and just follow me. 
A second question that we often ask when we go through transition is, is is this going to work out for my good or is this going to work out for my bad? Right? So you go through a transition, something changes, and immediately those wheels begin to turn and you begin to look down the road a little bit and you ask yourself, all right, when all this is over, right, when this chemo is done or whenever, whenever, you know, I find a new job or whenever we finally settle into a new house, or whenever I finish filing bankruptcy, we get back on our feet again, right? When that, this uh, transition is over, am I going to be worse or am I going to be better? And that's a question that we cannot help but ask ourselves. Am I going to be worse for this transition or am I going to be better? Here's what we found in Joshua. Here, and here's what we find in life. That when we trust God and when we walk with him on his terms, even through the difficulties of transition, and we look back, Oftentimes, the most significant life change that we can see in our lives, the positive life change, the good stuff, the most significant positive life change comes in the midst of times of transition. And so we're able to look back and we can say, you know what, I'm not the same person I used to be a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. I'm different. I'm a different person today for the good, right? And I can look back and I can say, maybe this is you. And the, where it all started, the hinge where God began to really change my life was this transition point that came in my life. And sometimes it's the most, the, the most positive life change that comes is in the context of transition. It, there, there are these spiritual markers, as we looked at last Sunday, that we can look back and we can say, God did this, and God did this, and God did this, and God did this, and all of that made me into who I am today. And many times those things were transitions. When we go through difficulties, we often as well ask the question, what on earth is God up to? All right, so maybe I can believe he's there, and maybe I can believe he's at work, but what is he up to? What is God doing? Because this transition that I'm going through is difficult, and it's scary, and I feel alone, and it hurts. So what exactly is God up to? That's what I want us to see this morning as we look in just a moment in Joshua chapter 5. And so let me give a little bit of a recap, just as a reminder. And then for some of you, this may be your very first Sunday. And, uh, you know, every message I hope stands alone, right? You don't have to be here for the ones before, uh, you know, in order for it to make sense. So if this is your first Sunday, let me just give a quick little recap of what we've been looking at in the Old Testament specifically. So in Joshua's day, we're looking at about 1,400 years, give or take, before Jesus would come and be born in the city of Bethlehem in the New Testament. So about 1,400 years before that would happen. Back up about another 750 years, there's a guy in the Old Testament named Abraham. God makes some very significant promises to Abraham in the book of Genesis. And he promises to Abraham, one, he says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to build you into a vast nation of people. And I'm also going to give your people a land. I promise you there's going to be a land that I'm going to set aside that's going to be just for my people, Abraham. And you're going to be kind of the start of it all. And so God makes this promise 750 years before Joshua ever comes on the scene. Well, towards the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 46, we find that Abraham has had a son who also had a son. The family has grown. Well, in Genesis 46, towards the end of the book, right, those people, God's people, have now moved to Egypt. There are a lot of circumstances that played into that. It was a huge transition point in their life. And so they moved to Egypt, and for 430 years... That family is in Egypt, and they're growing in number. Over that 430 years, they had come into the land of Egypt as honored guests. By the time that 430 years would end, they were slaves. They had grown to probably 2 million strong. 
Uh, the Egyptians were taking advantage of them. They were being used in slave labor, basically. And that's where we come into the book of Exodus. Well, God would raise up a guy named Moses. You probably heard of him. And uh, Moses would come. God would speak to him in a burning bush. And he would say to him, you're the man, Moses, that's going to lead my people to the promised land. Well, long story short, Moses would answer the call with a little kicking and fighting. He'd finally answer. And he'd begin to lead the people of Israel towards the promised land. They would, be, uh, uh, they would lack in faith. They would be disobedient, and they would wander for 40 years through the wilderness, still waiting for the land that God had promised. And at the end of Moses' life, in the end of Deuteronomy, we find that the people of God are on the very edge of the promised land, but they haven't yet arrived. And so the next transition would be a new leader. Moses is gone. Joshua is raised up. We find also that the old generation that had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years has now passed, and they have been replaced with a new generation that has been raised up. And now it's time for Joshua to lead the people of Israel across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And I don't know for you and me today, right, we're living in the 21st century, it seems so far removed, but you've got to understand this was a huge moment for them. I mean, this was the culmination of a promise that God had made. This was, this was their national identity in a lot of ways. They're going to take over the Promised Land here, but at the same time, their walk with God was going to finally begin moving into where God wanted it to be. This was a huge moment. And the lessons they learned back then are lessons we still apply still today. And so when we came into Joshua, by the time we finished chapter 4 last Sunday, here's what we found. The people of God now have crossed over the Jordan River. They're in the promised land. There's a huge miracle that God did. They crossed over the Jordan River on dry ground, just like Moses did 40 years before with the Red Sea. And now they're over in the promised land, and they're on the very verge of going in and beginning to take this land, starting with the city of Jericho. And so chapter 5 in the book of Joshua, verse 1, is in itself a transition. So let's read that, and then we're going to begin to see what we find in chapter 5. So chapter 5, verse 1, it says, So it came about when all the kings of the Amorites, this was part of the enemy that lived in the promised land, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, when they heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed over, right, when they heard about this huge miracle, their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. So God had them where he wanted them, right? I mean, he, he had them exactly. The, the, the people of Israel, were, they had already won the battle without drawing the first sword. I mean, the people in the land, their hearts melted with fear. They'd already heard about God's power and God's might, and, uh, and so the battle was done, right? They still had to go in and take the land, but for the most part, they had already obtained victory because of God's testimony, well, what Joshua does, we won't read these verses, but verses 2 through 9, he does something really interesting in, uh, they're, when they're now in the promised land. What he does is he begins to reinstitute the, uh, the rite of circumcision that had been practiced by the uh, Old Testament Israelites previously. For 40 years in the wilderness, they had set this, this aside. This was a covenant sign that God had implemented for them to be shown as the people of God. And it hadn't been practiced for 40 years. So Joshua says, it's time to, to, to re-implement that again. And he, and he did. He also celebrated the Passover, something that was started back in the book of Exodus, uh, all the way back in Moses' day. They celebrated that again. And so what Joshua does is, before they ever have their first battle, he is implementing the simple truth that every transition in our lives is a spiritual transition. God has a part, God has a purpose, God has a desire, God has a place, right? And so he's getting their hearts set 
on two things that were very important. Reminding them that they're the covenant people of God and celebrating the Passover, their deliverance in the first place. In verse 11 and verse 12 in chapter 5, we see that the manna ceases. God had used this manna. The Hebrew word manna, literally in Hebrew, it means what is it? And so it's kind of funny. I mean, stuff would, God would provide, it would fall, or, or it could come as like dew, and, and it was like a bread-like type substance from what the Old Testament says. And he would provide for them for 40 days in the wilderness. Every day he would give them manna. And uh, the day before the Sabbath, he would give like two days portion of it. And he'd provide for them this food. And uh, the day they stepped foot in the promised land, that cut off, that ceased. Because God had put them in the land where he had provided for them from the produce that was there. They were set. I mean, they were on the very verge of the biggest moment of their life. And yet before they would have the first battle, Joshua would have a very unique encounter with a very unique individual. And it's from that that we learn some simple principles that I think apply to us still today when we go through times of transition. Here's the first principle that I hope you'll jot down. The principle is this, that transitions allow us to hear more clearly from God. When you go through a time of transition, that transition in your life enables you, it allows you to hear from God more clearly than perhaps you've ever heard from him before. There is something about transition that gets our attention. It gets our attention more than blessing. Transition gets our attention usually more than a great big you know, amount of money in our bank account. Transition gets our attention more than a pay raise, more than a new house, more than a new adventure, right? Transition gets our attention. Transition perks our ears up. Transition puts us in a place to where we realize we have to hear from God, and we have to hear from God quickly, right? Transition does that. It enables us. It allows us to hear from God more quickly. Here's why this is important. Because when you and I go through transition, right, there are usually three responses to God. One, we ignore him. We, we go through a time of transition, and we, we think, you know what, I, God's not even on my radar. I don't, you know, I don't even know if God knows what's going on in this transition in my life. I don't care what God wants. I don't want to learn anything from God in this. I'm not going to pray. I'm just going to deal with this myself. We ignore God. That's one way we deal with transition. A second way is we acknowledge God, but we get mad at him. And we blame him and we shake our fist at him. And we, you know, we, we, just, you know, we, we push him away and we marginalize him and we walk away from him. You know, we try to ignore him. We try to suppress him. We, we try to just let all of our anger out and we vent at him. Not that God can't handle that. God can handle our, our deep emotions, right? Our honest emotions. But he doesn't desire that we push him away in the process. And so when we go through transition, we either ignore him or we get angry at him. Or third response, we listen. We listen for him and we listen to him with the intent ultimately to follow. And this is exactly what Joshua demonstrates for us here in this very, very interesting section of Scripture. Joshua chapter 5, let's jump in, verse 13 through verse 15. What we're seeing here is that transitions in our lives allow us to hear more clearly from God if we're willing to listen. Verse 13, so it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and he said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? 
And he said, no, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he bowed down, and he said to him, what is my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let's go back to the first part, verse 13 and verse 14. It says here that Joshua is by Jericho. Now, it doesn't give us a lot of explanation here. Here's what I kind of picture in my mind. Joshua is at a place of transition. The whole Israelite people now, two million plus more than likely, are across the Jordan River. They are in the promised land. First stop is going to be Jericho. Joshua has been to the promised land before. Remember, he was a spy 40 years previously when Moses sent in 12 spies. Joshua was one of those guys. He knows the layout of the land. He is a skilled warrior. He is a leader. He knows where he is. But it's sounds like possibly what he's done is he has has kind of stepped away from the encampment so to speak and that he perhaps is checking out Jericho on his own here I mean he's a skilled spy he knows how to do what he needs to do and it sounds like he's going to check out Jericho and it says when he was by Jericho that in that circumstance and it sounds like he's kind of alone he's isolated that he looks up and there's a man standing there with his sword drawn he is dressed for battle he is an imposing figure he he is a uh, uh, he is right there in the midst of Joshua's you know Joshua's space right and, and Joshua's looking at him eyeball to eyeball Joshua says to him, are you for us or for our adversary? See, there is a significant understanding here for Joshua. This is no ordinary person. So who is this man? Right? Who is this man? He's described at the end of this passage there in verse 14 as the captain of the hosts of the Lord. Here, here's what I want to submit to you. And if you, if you study theologians, most are going to come down to the same spot. Here's who I think this person is. I think this person that Joshua sees is what would be called a, uh, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, right? This is Jesus appearing before he would have been born in the city of Bethlehem. He said, I don't know if that can happen. He's God, okay? You can show up anywhere you want, whenever you want. Now, how do we know this? How do we understand this? Largely by Joshua's response. He describes himself as the captain of the host of the Lord. Let's look over the next slide and go a little bit further. What is Joshua's response when he sees him, when he finds out who he is? It says that he bows down. He falls on his face before him in seemingly a position of worship. And that captain of the host of the Lord does nothing to stop that. He doesn't do anything. In the New Testament, we see examples where Paul was, someone tried to worship Paul. And he's like, get on your feet, man. I'm just an ordinary guy like you are. Don't worship me. Worship, worship God. That doesn't happen here. Joshua falls down on his face. He bows down before this man, and he doesn't do anything to tell him to stop. The very ground where this person is is described at the end of that passage as being holy ground. And if you look over in chapter 6, verse 1, verse 2, when the man speaks, it says the Lord speaks to Joshua. And so it seems as though this is none other than Jesus Christ himself. There in the presence of Joshua. Joshua says, you know what, my mom ain't raised no dummy. You were huge. You got your sword drawn. I got to ask this question. Whose side are you on? Because if you're on our side, you plus me and all these troops, right, we're going to go in. It's going to be a piece of cake. 
But if you're on their side, I want to have to rethink this because maybe I didn't hear from God completely accurately. Maybe I missed something along the way. Because if you're on their side, I don't think I want to go face to face with you. And I'm the leader of the whole shoot match back here. So whose side are you on? Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And I love the response, the, 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 the figure, I think it's Jesus himself. I love the response that he says. He says, no, <laughs> you know, which is an interesting answer. Are you for us or are you for them? No. Well, what do you mean, no? Are you for us or are you for them? No, I am not on your side and I am not on their side. Here's what it seems he is saying. I did not come to take sides. I came to take over. And I came to implement my purpose and my plan and my will and my big story through this particular point in time in the context of transition. And Joshua had a decision to make. When Jesus himself appears on the scene in the context of transition and says, I've come to take over, he has to decide, am I going to go a different route or am I going to fall in line and follow where he leads? And it was the biggest decision perhaps Joshua would ever make. It's interesting that it all started with Joshua's response. Verse 14, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Transition allows us to hear more clearly from God than sometimes any other place in life. So what transition are you in the midst of today? What transition are you navigating and have you allowed that transition to bring you to a place to where everything else is noise? And as you push it to the side, you say, Lord, what do you have to say to me? Because this is hard, and I feel alone, and I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't completely understand what you're up to, but I desperately need to hear from you. Is that your response in the midst of the transition of your life? See, Joshua would learn a lesson that day. I'll give away the rest of the story since we're not preaching it. But Israel takes the promised land. I have a sneaky suspicion you knew that. And a lot of it started right here. Transition is an attention getter. And perhaps it's because of principle number two that it works so well. Principle number two, transitions often reveal our own brokenness in life. When I say brokenness, part of what I mean is it's when we go through transition that we realize more clearly that I don't have all the answers and I don't have what it takes and I don't know how I'm going to make it through I desperately need help from the outside because I'm a broken down person in a broken down world filled with broken down systems and I need someone to come and rescue me. Transition often accomplishes that like nothing else. You know, when you think about brokenness, none of us would be quick to raise our hand to volunteer for it. But it's brokenness that is often the, the loudest the loudest voice that God speaks to in our lives is through brokenness. You know, when you look in our, in our world, 
you find that brokenness surrounds us. It surrounds us in regards to relationships. It surrounds us in everyday life. As I mentioned, we have broken systems in a broken world, and we ourselves are broken people. What we have to keep in mind, however, and I'm, I'm no artist, so you're going to have to show a little bit of grace here, but what we, what we have to realize is that God's original design was not to include brokenness. God's original design was for perfection. You remember the story of Adam and Eve, it's all true, that when God created Adam and Eve, He created them to have unbroken fellowship with Him. It's the same reason that He would want to create you and me, to have unbroken relationship with the God who created us unbroken fellowship. And that's what Adam and, he, and Eve had for a season. The Bible doesn't tell us how long it lasted. It doesn't tell us if it lasted a week, a month, a year, 10 years, 100 years. It doesn't tell us how long it lasted. But that fellowship, that unbroken relationship that was God's original design was ultimately broken. And the way that it was broken was by what the Bible calls sin. You know, it's real easy for us to blame Adam and Eve for their sin. You know, I remember as a kid thinking, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a conversation with Adam. You know, what on earth was up with that? And, uh, you know, maybe you've kind of thought that as well. But to be honest, had we been in their place, we would have done the same thing. We would have gone our own independent way, rebelled against the God who created us, and tried plan B. And before we can blame Adam and Eve, we have to think of our own lives because countless times, thousands of times, we've done that very thing. We've sinned, haven't we? And what the Bible tells us, we don't need it to tell us because we know it from our own life experience, is that whenever we sin, what that leads to is what we've today called brokenness. Brokenness that pervades our lives. And that brokenness seeps into every relationship. It seems it seeps into every, uh, everything we try to accomplish. That brokenness pervades every part of our lives. We find ourselves bankrupt and empty, and in response to that, we try different things to try to somehow fill the gap that that brokenness brings. We try to get back to God's design. We say things like, you know what, I'm going to start going to church. You know, I'm going to try to be a better person. I'm going to clean up my language. I'm going to straighten up what I do on my weekends. I'm going to hang out with better people. I'm going to get a new job. I'm going to move to a new city. I'm going to start, you know, doing other things to fill this void in my life. I'm going to find a new relationship. And some of those things are good in and of themselves. Many of those things are not. They only make us more and more broken or they put off the inevitable. Because nothing can fill the void that comes when we live a life of sin that breaks our relationship with our Creator. There will always be a hole there that only Jesus Christ can fill. And that's the beauty of the gospel. You see, the third circle in this very simple picture is the message of the gospel. That in the midst of our brokenness and in the midst of our own sin, God loved us so much that he sent a, a substitute and he sent a sacrifice and his name is Jesus Christ. The New Testament unfolds the picture of what we see in just a, a few frames in the Old Testament. The New Testament just explodes it into a beautiful masterpiece of the Savior Jesus, God himself, who came for us. And he died on the cross in our place. And he died not because he had committed sin. He died for the sin that we had committed. He died to heal the brokenness that our accomplishments and our acquisitions and that our relationships could never fill. That's why he came, and that's why he died, and that's why he rose. And yet, that's not enough. Something has to link our brokenness with his sacrifice. And that link is that the Bible tells us that ultimately we have to repent, which simply means to turn, and we have to believe. 
You know, some of you, when you hear the word repent, you may put a little baggage to that, right? You may remember some fire and brimstone preacher who uh, scared the life out of you, right, when you were six years old, and all they talked about was repent, and you've had a bad taste in your mouth ever since. The word repent is actually a very beautiful word. The word repent means to turn. And it means to turn from that which has broken us, that which has cost us so much, our own sin. And repent means that we turn from it. Sounds like a no-brainer, doesn't it? That we turn from it, and in that same motion, we take one step of belief, which means trust in that person of Jesus Christ. We trust in his sacrifice. We trust in who he is. And with our heart that is, that is fully yielded, we say, Lord Jesus, would you come and would you take what you did on the cross and apply it to my life? Would you forgive me and would you take over? We turn and we trust. And as we do, what we find is a beautiful connection. Not that life becomes easy. Not that life is now void of difficulties. No, hard transitions still come. We live in a broken world with broken systems filled with broken people. But what we find is when we come to Jesus on his terms, ultimately our relationship with God is restored. And we have the capacity now to pursue that fellowship that God had intended from the very beginning. And this church is filled with people, filled with people that have made that difference, that made that transition from a life of brokenness to a life yielded to Jesus. And at a variety of levels, this church is filled with people that have not only seen their life restored because of God's grace, but are pursuing him, pursuing him with all their heart, to be who God created them ultimately to be. But here's what I know. Not everyone has done that. And the beautiful picture of transition is that it brings us to a place to where we hear more clearly from God like never before because we realize in our transition, we are broken people who need rescue. Broken down people who need a savior. Broken down people who need salvation. You know, at the end of this story in Joshua chapter 24, we won't read the whole passage, but Joshua is at the end of his days. He would pass away at the age of 110. The people of Israel would be fully settled in the land. And as he comes and as he recounts the goodness and the faithfulness of God, he closes out chapter 24 with a bit of a challenge to the people. Kalen, let's bring up that last slide in chapter 24. I love this. He says to the people that surround him, the people of Israel, so choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But in case anybody's wondering what my decision's going to be, as one who has trusted God in the midst of transition in his life, from from a servant to to the great Moses to the leader who felt unprepared so many times God had to tell me to be strong and courageous four different times in three different verses, to the one who now has seen God's handiwork and God's blessing and God's plan in the midst of transition that would have blown anybody else away. In case you're wondering, as for me in my house, Joshua says, we're going to serve the Lord. And it's a decision where the rubber hits the road where we, living in the 21st century, surrounded by all kinds of noise and distractions, surrounded by people who are broken down, have to decide who exactly will we now serve. Will our transition make us worse and send us away? Or will it make us better? Because we've seen in the midst of it that our God has been good and our God 
has been faithful and our God has saved. Corey Ten Boom knew a little bit about transition. Concentration camp, seeing her own sister die in a concentration camp. Devoted follower of Jesus Christ. My friend Greg Herlebus shared, reminded me in our D group actually this week of a little poem that Corey Ten Boom, one familiar with transition, has written. Listen to what it says. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. If you've never given your life to Jesus, there is no better time than today and no better time than now. And all it takes is a simple prayer of surrender that says, Lord Jesus, I've known it for so long, but today I turn from sin and I invite you to come and forgive and take over. If you've done that, hey, he didn't bring you this far to leave you on a curb and say, I'll see you when you get to heaven. He's always at work, always for his glory. And even when you can't see it, for your good. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, as we close out this message, close out this series, with no one looking around, I'd like to ask the most important question I'll probably ask all day. Do you know for sure that you've given your life to Christ? And with heads bowed and eyes closed, if not, would you be willing and are you ready today to pray and to give your life to the Savior who gave his life for you? This morning, if your desire is, you know, Brooks, I need a Savior. I know my sin has broken my relationship with God. And today, I think I'm finally ready to pray and to turn from my sin and to invite Jesus to come in and forgive me and take over. If that's you today, I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going to call you to stand. All I'm going to simply ask is that you slip your hand up, put it right back down. If today's the day where you desire to give your life to Christ, would you just slip that hand up, put it right back down again? Anyone at all? One? Any others? Any others? Two? Any others? I may have missed a hand here or there, heads down, eyes closed. God knows the position of your heart. That's what matters most. For those that raise their hand or for those that have a desire today to give your life to Jesus, I'm just going to simply ask you to pray, repeating after me. And you're not talking to me. I need a Savior as much as you do. But I'm going to ask you to just recite this prayer back to Jesus. There's nothing magical about the words, but it's a great way to express the desire of your heart as you simply pray, Lord Jesus, I know that I need you. And I know that my sin has broken relationship with God. 
Today I acknowledge that you, Jesus, are God and that you came and you died in my place and rose again. And today is an act of my will. I turn from my sin the best that I can and I invite you to come and to forgive me and to take over from this day forward. Today, Jesus, would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you be my Lord and my Savior? And would you help me to walk with you from this day forward and to enjoy you forever? For it's in your name I pray. Amen. Lord Jesus, I thank you today for those who for the first time perhaps have given their lives to you. Lord, thank you that we don't have to sit down with a priest or a pastor. We don't have to get better and clean ourselves up first. Thank you that we don't have to jump through all these hoops. The only hoop you call us to jump through is the hoop of surrender when we turn from sin and place our faith in you, Jesus. And God, for those that prayed that today, I thank you that your word says that that you've given them new life. You've given them a new heart. And Lord, even though in this world there will still be hard days, there's a new life awaiting in a place called heaven. And until then, you're going to be faithful and you're going to be good. And so God, for those of us that have already made that decision, help us to live our lives genuinely on mission for you. In this broken down world with broken down people, we are salt and we are light. You called us that yourself. And so Lord, help us to live a life that doesn't conflict with the message of the gospel. But help us to live in a way that gives it teeth. Help us to live in a way that, that amplifies that message. That people would want what we have through their own relationship with Christ. And so, Lord, bless this time, we pray. As we, as we sing, as we worship, and as we follow, bless it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together this morning as we sing our song of invitation. This morning, before we sing, if you prayed and for the first time gave your life to Christ, I would invite you at some point in the next couple of minutes to fill out one of those connection cards. On the reverse side of that card, there's a box to check that you gave your life to Christ today for the very first time. I'd invite you to check that if you made that decision. We want to follow up with you. I'll follow up with you myself personally. We just want to encourage you and pray for you and help you to see some important next steps. But you do that if you could in the next couple of minutes. And as we sing and as we worship this morning, you follow as God leads.